Our text this morning is Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, continuing our study in the book of Revelation. Hear now God's holy word. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you for your word and we ask you to apply it to our hearts today. Help us to understand and see the scope of this book that you have given us as a revelation, as a disclosure, as an unveiling of your son, our Savior Jesus. And so may we embrace the truths of this book and receive the blessings that you have promised on those who would read and hear this book. So guide us today by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Several years ago, a group of college-aged Christians got together to form a new congregation, and they called it the Saturday Night Church. They were disenchanted with denominationalism, and they were disenchanted with dead formalism, and who, who isn't, right? We're, we all agree those are bad things. They wanted a clean break, and they wanted a fresh start. And so they deliberately did everything that they could to completely break with any kind of form or any kind of tradition. So they would meet on Saturday night, not, not Sunday morning. Saturday night is the time that they would meet. There would be no church officers in the Saturday night church. Everyone would rule equally. So no hierarchy of any kind. No set format for their gatherings would be established. This was going to be a church led only by the Holy Spirit. So form, you know, form suppresses the Holy Spirit and quenches the free expression of the Holy Spirit. That's what they believed. So no pews, no building, none of the recognizable features of the present day church would be utilized in the Saturday night church. They would be getting back to the first century, back to the New Testament. The first meetings, when they first started getting together, the first meetings were so full of excitement and energy. Everyone expected the Holy Spirit to do incredible things with their faithfulness. They followed a liturgy of popular consent. So do we want to sing now? Well, sure, let's sing. What do you want to sing? Well, what do you want to sing? Let's sing something. And how about this one? Good, we'll sing that one. Who wants to share something? Somebody want to share a scripture or a lesson? We'll go right ahead. And so after a few weeks, the room that they were meeting in, the apartment was, was full. What do you do when you can't fit everybody in, uh, in your apartment? What do you use? Well, a church building, even a church basement, is out of the question because that would stifle the spirit. So they moved into the larger home of a wealthy friend. It was still a house, so they were still home-based. And for a time, true, primitive, New Testament Christianity was recovered in the United States by this group of college-age Christians. But they soon found out that ritual is inescapable. If someone needs to be baptized, what do you do? What precedent do you follow? Do you follow an order? How do you do it? Who does it? Who does the baptism? 
What if two young people want to get married? How do you go about doing that? If, if God forbid, there's a death, what's the best way to conduct a funeral? And so while their worship uh, gatherings started out without any set liturgy or form or order, eventually the group desired stability over unconventionality. They, they wanted the security of knowing what's going to happen this week. What are we going to do when we get together? Their, their meetings gradually grew more and more predictable. The same people spoke every time. Their meetings always started at the same time and started in the same way. Eventually, the more gifted people uh, took over the regular teaching duties because everyone preferred to listen to to them. And and the ones who preached developed a kind of routine for how they work through the scriptures together. So the non-liturgical Saturday night church over time developed a liturgy. Liturgy is inescapable. You can have a good one, you can have a bad liturgy. All a liturgy is is an order. All a liturgy is is a prescribed order for how we're going to do things when we get together. And you can have a good order, you can have a bad one, but you develop habits for the way that you do things. You have liturgies in your home. There are things that happen when you come home at the end of the day. There are things that happen in a particular order when you get up in the morning. It's either a good liturgy or it's a bad one. It's either organized or it's disorganized, but you have a liturgy that you follow. You develop habits and the efforts to escape order only result in instituting a different kind of order. Uh, so, so having it's, it's this um, odd uh, uh, perspective to think that having a set time of worship on Sunday morning stifles the spirit, but having a set time of worship on Saturday night is freedom. That's, that's, out of, uh, that, that's not consistent. Putting thought and care into composing a prayer to lead worship with, that, that, that's stuffy and that, that quenches the spirit. But leading prayer off the top of your head is more genuine, um, even though we all kind of fall back into using the same four or five phrases. We all, we all do it when we, when we pray. The presupposition is always that freedom comes in the absence of form, that that life comes out of random, spontaneous actions. But is that really the way things go? In fact, furthermore, is that the way things run in heaven? We pray every Lord's Day, we pray in the Lord's Prayer for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want things to work here exactly they work uh, the way they work in heaven. And, And so when we consider this issue of how worship runs in heaven, do the angels with all the saints and the martyrs and the elders before God's throne, do they make things up on the fly or is there order? Well, the best part about asking that question is that we don't have to guess at an answer. At several points in the scriptures, we get glimpses into heavenly worship. There are these various passages in the Bible where we get the curtain pulled back and we get to see into heaven and we get to see what is said there. We get to smell what's going on there. We get to hear what's going on and see it. And we get to see what's going on in God's heavenly throne room. Isaiah does that for us. Ezekiel gives us a window into heaven. Uh, Exodus, the whole book of Exodus and Leviticus are about building an earthly representation of God's heavenly courtroom, his heavenly throne room. It's about the the tabernacle is an earthly representation. Later, the temple is an earthly representation of what they see in heaven. And Leviticus is about establishing patterns of earthly worship that reflect 
heavenly worship. Uh, furthermore, we have the Psalms and we have many canticles scattered throughout the scripture, little, little songs in the scriptures, spirit-breathed texts that show us this is what God likes to hear from his people in worship. So we aren't left with a blank sheet to kind of make things up as we go along. There is latitude, there is, uh, there, there's a lot of flexibility, but, but generally we, uh, we have some structure, we have some order, a great deal of information and instruction in the scriptures about what goes on in heavenly worship and what God likes. Even though the assumption, of course, held by many of our brothers in the evangelical world, is, it's just kind of up to us to put together something that looks neat when we get together. It, we ignore the great wealth of information and instruction in the Bible on worship. Well, this Advent, we are beginning this study of the book of Revelation. It's a book that's widely regarded by Christians either to be so impractical and so difficult to read that it's, it's really of no use. Maybe you can read it and start fights over it, but other than that, it's really not helpful. Or the other view is that it's this apocalyptic code book with connections to everything in yesterday's USA Today. So if we get out the newspaper or we watch the, uh, watch the news on cable, we can somehow find in Revelation a code to explain what's going on on the news. Neither of those, as I said last week, are helpful, correct. Neither of those are good approaches to the book of Revelation. Both of them are historically inaccurate. The, 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 um, you know, the church has not used the book of Revelation that way in history. Uh, when, when you read the book from start to finish without those assumptions, when you take those away, you see that the book of Revelation is something else entirely. This book is a, first and foremost, it's a detailed account. It's a record of a heavenly worship service. In Revelation, we are called with John up into the heavenlies to see how things run in heaven. So in the introduction, we find all this takes place on the Lord's day. John is in the spirit on the Lord's day. You are in the spirit on the Lord's day. You have answered God's call to worship. And so you are in the spirit. Right now, you are following the Spirit. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is God's worship leader. He uh, directs all glory and praise and honor to Jesus. And so you're in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, just as John is. And so everything that John sees is on the Lord's Day, uh, which is another way of saying the Day of the Lord. You've heard me compare those two. Whenever you hear about the Day of the Lord in the, uh, in the prophets, the Day of the Lord is the day when Yahweh comes to visit and inspect and bless and cleanse and change and transform and feed and nourish and heal his people. And all of this happens on the Lord's day. Leviticus 23.3 says every Sabbath is the Lord's day, um, is a day of the Lord. So we have, that, um, we, we have that component that the book begins and is carried through on the Lord's day uh, under the leadership of heaven's worship leader, who is the Holy Spirit. And also we have this hint that this is, this is a book written to be used in worship because we have the blessing at the very beginning. Keep these words, keep these things, uh, because blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. So this is a book meant to be read out loud, shared out loud, and heard being read out loud, and you do that in, in worship. Uh, it's written to the churches to be used in worship, and it all happens on the Lord's Day. So that sets the context. That's the foundation of this book, that it's all beginning within the context of worship. 
And all this information is up front in the introduction so that we know what is about to unfold is happening within the context of worship. Then as we proceed, what we get is an invitation to come up into the heavenlies to see what worship looks like and sounds like around the throne of God. And it's not going to be any surprise to us, I don't think, that the, what follows is neatly arranged around the same pattern of worship that we see throughout the Bible. Whenever God prescribes worship for his people, whenever he institutes a covenant, whenever he renews a covenant, we see it at the altar, we see it at the tabernacle, we see it at the temple, we see it in every animal sacrifice, we see it at the Lord's table when he's instituting the Last Supper, we see a rhythm, an order that we can pick up on and that we can, we can follow. God always issues a call to worship there's a ritual of cleansing. There's an ascension to hear the word where God speaks. There's fellowship and communion, and there's a blessing and ascending out. And Christian worship on the Lord's day for centuries has followed this same pattern. There's a call to worship, a confession of sin. You ascend to hear the word proclaimed. You're consecrated there by the word. There's communion, and there's a benediction, a blessing, a commissioning, a sending out. And so the book of Revelation, I don't think it should be any a surprise to you, the book of Revelation follows and sustains this liturgical progression. And one way to outline the book of Revelation is to follow the order of Christian liturgy. So I'm going to show you over the next like 15, 20 minutes how it does this. And so you can have an idea of what's going on in this book and find yourself in the book of Revelation by finding yourself in the liturgy. What part of the Christian liturgy, what part of the order of worship are we in in this chapter? And that's, that's one way we'll outline the book of Revelation. So it begins in chapter 1 with a call to worship. John hears a loud voice like a trumpet that grabs him and calls him to attention. Where have we heard trumpets before? Well, we heard them at Mount Sinai. Moses hears the same sound and the people heard the sound of a voice like a trumpet when they, when they come near to, to Mount Sinai. Let me read uh, Exodus 19. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings. Now, right away, we got to stop, right? Uh, thunderings and lightnings. Whenever we see that veil pulled back, whenever we see a prophet pull back the curtain, it happens in Ezekiel 1, it happens in Isaiah 6, it even happens on the day of Pentecost, there is fire and there is noise. Every time, uh, there, there's not just, you know, these kind of hooded, you know, robed angels, you know, like monks in Monty Python, just kind of droning, right? It's noise and it's light and it's thunder. That's what we see and hear every time we peek into heaven. And that's what Moses and the children of Israel hear as they, as they get, close to the, get close to the mountain. There is a thick cloud on the mountain and the sound of the trumpet. This is still, I'm still reading from Exodus 19. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because Yahweh descended upon it in fire. Day of the Lord, right? God has descended to come sort things out and to meet with his people and to feed them and preserve them and give them his word. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. Then Yahweh came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain 
And Yahweh called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. So what did we just read? He heard the voice of a trumpet, a voice that sounded like a trumpet. He heard the sound of a trumpet that called Moses up the mountain. What do we have in Revelation 1? The voice like the sound of a trumpet calling John up to meet with God and see what's going on in heaven. Um, now, um, for, for Moses, uh, the call to come up and visit with Yahweh came with this ear-melting, chest-rattling uh, blast of a trumpet. And later when the tabernacle is set up, the priests would imitate this sound with their own trumpets and they would call the people to come and visit with Yahweh at the meeting tent. In Numbers chapter 10, Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, make two silver trumpets for yourself. You shall make them of hammered work. You shall use them for calling the congregation and for directing the movement of the camps. Remember, Israel was arranged in their camps around the tabernacle at the center. They were arranged in ranks like an army, they were assembled when they, when they camped. And they moved like a military camp. And they fought like a military camp. And the trumpets that called them for formation were the same trumpets that called them for worship. And so when you hear the trumpets, you gather together in ranks, in order, in line, in front of the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And so you hear the trumpets and you think, are we getting together to fight or are we getting together to worship? And what's the answer? Yes. Yeah, that's what we're doing. We're getting together because worship for Israel's warfare. The priests lead with the Ark of the Covenant into battle. They blow the trumpets. Uh, Jericho falls not by siege warfare. Jericho falls by heavenly siege warfare. It falls by worship. And so, um, and, and so the same trumpets that call them for assembly as an army are the, are the trumpets that call them to assemble for worship. Let me, let me finish Numbers uh, 10. When they blow both of them, all the congregation shall gather before you at the door of the tabernacle meeting. So the sound of the trumpet called Moses up to meet Yahweh. The sound of trumpet calls Israel to assembly. It calls them into formation. Now John is called with the blast of a trumpet up to the heavenlies. Now, historically, the church has called people to worship in a similar way, with instruments, with bells in the bell tower that you can hear for miles, with great pipe organs that shake the windows and rattle the walls. We, we make our own lightning and thunder. We call God's army to formation. We, we, we call uh, God's army to come up, come up Mount Sinai, come visit and be visited by God. When Israel heard the trumpet-like voice of God at Mount Sinai, they were overwhelmed. And they said uh, later, we were surprised that we were still alive after hearing that sound. And they also said, you know, Moses, we'd prefer if we never had to hear that again. If Moses, if you would just deal with him from now on, and because if we ever hear that again, we'll die. That's, that's what they said. And so when John hears the sound, what does he do? He falls down like a dead man, right? Um, he hears the trumpet and verse 12, I turned to see the voice that spoke to me. Um, and having turned, uh, he sees one like the son of man and verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. John was completely blown away by what he sees and by what he hears, and, and Jesus hasn't even gotten started yet, showing him everything he wants to show him. But John's fear is a good fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
If you hear the call to worship, if you hear that trumpet blast and you come into the presence of a perfectly holy, righteous God, and if you aren't afraid, then you're asleep. If you hear the trumpet, if God calls you to come to him and draw near to you and you aren't sobered by that, if you think it's a trifle, if you think this is all just a little inconvenient obligation on a Sunday morning when you'd rather be doing other things, this is just something that gets in the way of other things you'd rather be doing. If it doesn't strike you with fear and trembling to think about what you are engaged in when God comes to meet with you, then you're not paying attention. You, you don't know what you are dealing with. You don't know who you are dealing with. Fear is the proper first reaction. The people of Mount Sinai quaked. John falls on his face as dead. Uh, Isaiah does the same thing in Isaiah chapter 6. But this fear gets replaced by uh, awe and reverence after there's repentance and recognition of our condition. So John falls down as a dead man and Jesus lifts him back up. So in order to join heavenly worship, you have to fall down. You have to die and you have to be resurrected. You have to fall down and be lifted back up, which is, again, something we do in Christian worship. In the traditional Christian liturgy, after the call to worship, there's a confession of sins. We fall down like dead men. We're burdened by our deadly sins. And we ask Jesus to kill those sins. We ask Jesus to crucify them, those sins. And then he forgives us. He takes us by the hand and he stands us back up again. Jesus does this with John. And then in the next two chapters of Revelation, Jesus deals with the, the sins of his churches. Now in chapters two and three, you have the letters to the seven churches and Jesus is inspecting his churches he shines the light on their shortcomings. He shines the light on their sins, their failures, and he calls them to repentance. And at the end of all this is an invitation to communion. In chapter 3, verse uh, 20, he tells uh, the church at Laodicea, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. This is what I want. This is what, this is what the Lord Jesus wants. He wants communion with you. The goal of falling down and confessing and repenting your sins, the goal of this is the restoration of fellowship, union and sweet communion together in the covenant. And you can't have that though until you deal with your sin. Ever since the second great awakening in America, a popular practice has been in churches to save all of the confession, to save all of the getting right with God toward the end of worship. And so all of worship then becomes about driving you to a decision, driving you to repentance. All the songs and the sermons are, are pleading with you to get to that decision of repentance. And now that comes at the end and then you go home and that's it. Well, we want to take care of that on the front end. That's not the biblical order. You deal with sins at the beginning. You're cleansed on the front end. You need to be forgiven before you can take another step in worship. And so we do it corporately, not individually. We do it all together so that we're all cleansed. So Revelation begins with a call to worship. There's a section on confession of sin. The letters to the churches are all about dealing with sins and confessing sin and dealing with sin and cleansing from sin. And now we're ready to ascend into 
heaven's liturgy already in progress. Worship is always going on in heaven. Worship was going on in heaven before you woke up this morning. And after you go to bed tonight, worship is going to go on in heaven. Worship will be going on in heaven on Tuesday also. Also on Thursday, worship will be going on in heaven. It never stops. Worship is always going on in heaven. And on the Lord's day, we get to link up with that worship as John does in chapters four and five. There's this succession of songs as he ascends into worship. There is the song that we call the Sanctus in chapter four. Sanctus just means holy. Whenever you have a Latin name for a little bit of music, it's not an effort to be fancy. It's just the uh, Latin name. It's the, the Latin word for the first name of the song. So the Gloria Patri is what? Glory be to the Father. That's all it is, uh, right? So the Sanctus is just holy. It's singing holy, holy, holy with the angels. And that's the first song that John hears as he ascends into heaven. If you're following along, I want to show you these as we, as we run through several chapters. Uh, in chapter 4, verse 8, the angels sing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And then there's another little bit of music in verse 11. Uh, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. In verse uh, 9, they sang a new song saying, um, and this is chapter 5, 5, 9. They sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. And then in verse 12, another uh, heavenly chorus starts singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then every creature which is in heaven on earth and under the earth and such are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And we could look at, there's uh, songs in chapter 7, chapter 15, chapter 16. There are songs of choirs singing back and forth to each other. And Christian worship is traditionally populated with these little bits of music that attend each step of our ascent into the heavenlies. Each transition reflects the worship that's going on in heaven. Now we do a few of these. We do the doxology. We do the Gloria Patri. We sing the Lord's Prayer. In different seasons of the church here, we sing Mary's song, the Magnificat, like we're doing through Advent or in Epiphany and Christmas, Christmas and Epiphany. We sing the Nuke Dimittis, which is uh, the song of Simeon. Uh, you might have seen others in various churches you visited. You might have seen some different words in the bulletin, words like introit. Has anybody ever seen that word? An introit, all that means is entrance. And so as you come into worship, you sing Psalm 100. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Or you might have seen the word venite. Again, all it is is the Latin word for the first word of the psalm, which is Psalm 95, Come ye. So, so Psalm 95, you enter God's uh, heavenly courtroom singing, O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us heartily rejoice in the strength of our salvation. And that psalm ends with, O come, let us worship and bow down and kneel before the Lord our maker. And guess what you do after you sing, O come, let us worship and bow down. You kneel and confess your sins. And after you confess your sins and after you're forgiven, you sing, the Sursum Corda, which is lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. And then you sing the Sanctus that we just read, the Holy, 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 the Song of the Angels, as you join their ongoing worship. When the pastor prays the intercessory prayer, we all sing together, Kyrie eleison, Lord, have mercy on us. Uh, or you sing the Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God. O Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, grant us thy peace. The point of all these little bits of music, and most of them are just a line. Most of them are two lines. The doxology 
doxology doesn't take very long to sing. The Gloria Patri is just, just a few seconds. The point of, of in Christian worship, adding these little musical transitions is not just to be fancy. It's not just to be traditional for its own sake. It's not because we have this uh, desire to be high church, you know, Episcopalians to be, you know, suddenly we'll be rich if we start doing that and acting like, you know, uh, we're, we're all part of the country club. That's not it at all. That's not the point. The point is to reflect heaven's worship. That's the point. This is what goes on in heaven's worship. Just about nothing happens without someone singing a song about it in Revelation. And when, when we do it, when we add these little songs, worship becomes more participatory, not less. Because when you sing the doxology, your, your children may not have made it all the way through some of the longer hymns today and, and most Sundays. Your children may not make it through uh, some of the more complicated things that we sing. But when the doxology comes, hey, hey, I got this one. Y'all stand back. Let me belt out the doxology or the Gloria Patri or the Amen. They get it. And so with the, the aged and the infirm, these are the things that we remember. How many times have you been driving or praying and you what comes to mind is not you know a 12 verse hymn though there are many glorious wonderful awesome amazing 12 verse hymns that we all love but what comes to your mind are those little pieces of music and that's what uh, that's what pulls us into worship it pulls John into worship and it, and, and it elevates the worship in glory. Everything gets sung in heaven. There's all this singing going on. And so as John ascends on these songs, as there's this, this gradual increase of, of music, John ascends into the presence, and now it's time for the word to be opened and proclaimed. And that takes up the biggest section of Revelation, chapter 6 through chapter 14 are the scrolls being opened up and being read. And so in Christian worship, typically the sermon takes up more time than anything else, and it takes up most of the space in Revelation. Now the books, the word in Revelation, come in the form, it comes in the form of scrolls. They're all sealed. So it takes longer for these to be methodically opened and read. And the seals of the books are broken in chapter 6 and 7. And then they're read and applied from chapters 8 through chapter 14. This, when we're working through Revelation verse by verse, chapter by chapter, this is going to be the section that's going to take the longest for us to unpack because this is the summary of the whole Bible. All the books get opened and read, all the mysteries get revealed, and our job is to take it and internalize it and eat it. In Revelation chapter 10, join me over there if you're following along in verse 5. Revelation 10, verse 5, this is John speaking. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea that are things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, which he's about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. And the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it, and I will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. So the job at the end of all of this opening of these scrolls and the opening of the word, the call is for John to take the word and to eat it, to internalize it, to make it a part of him, to incorporate it. God's will, his law, his wisdom is unveiled through the reading and the hearing of the word, and then we get to eat it. We get to consume it. 
incorporate it into us and it becomes part of us. You, you are what you eat, right? Well, you need to eat this. This word is food. This word is bread. In Revelation, the opening of the scrolls is deliberate. We open one right after another. There's this thorough, comprehensive order that we go through opening these scrolls, each one building on the one that came before it. And this is, this is how preaching is done in churches that are faithful to the spirit of the Reformation. We take a scroll, we break the seal, we unroll it, and we read it, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And sir, we uh, preach the incarnation at Christmas, we preach resurrection at Easter, but we spend the vast majority of our time working through the scrolls, working through whole books. I love the story about uh, John Calvin in Geneva. Uh, the way that he preached was uh, on Sunday mornings, he preached through the New Testament, book by book, by chapter by chapter, by verse by verse. On Sunday afternoons, they had another service and John Calvin preached through the Psalms on Sunday afternoons. Start with Psalm 1, go to Psalm 150, start over, go back to Psalm 1, preach through Psalm 150. And on every day of the week, he preached through the Old Testament. You know, he, he would get up in the morning and before everybody went to work, there'd be a worship service. And in that worship service, he would preach through the Old, the Old Testament. Day after day, verse by verse, reading and hearing the whole counsel of God. And when the uh, city fathers, the, church, uh, the, the city council of Geneva started dictating to John Calvin how he was going to do communion in the church, uh, he left. Uh, Martin Butzer asked John Calvin to come up to minister with him in Strasbourg to some French refugees that were in Strasbourg. And so John Calvin left uh, for three or four years. He left Geneva until his friend back in Geneva, Farrell, convinced him to come back to Geneva. And when he did, John Calvin came back into the pulpit that he left four years later. He started at the very next verse that he left off from four years earlier. And so if they were in Psalm 41, he said, okay, open your, Psalm 42 is what we're going to do today. He went back right where he left off and went right back preaching that way until he died. And the goal of this, what this produces is whole Bible Christians. There's no part of God's word that we ignore. There's no part of it that we skim over. We want to hear all of it and we want to get all of it and we want to eat all of it. We want to internalize it all. So at the very end of this word section of Revelation, we have a response to the word. How do we respond to the reading and the teaching of the word? Well, we respond in thanksgiving by giving a representative portion of our labors, uh, a portion of our work back to God. And so in chapter 14, Revelation 14, God puts his sickle into the earth and he reaps his reward. He reaps bread and he reaps wine. And so, so far we've been called into worship. We've dealt with our sins. We've heard the word open and read. And after God has spoken, he desires communion with us. So we seal the, the covenant with a meal. Chapters 15 through 19 in Revelation bring us to the marriage supper of the lamb. If you want to pick up in chapter 19, verse six. Um, and I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. So, after 
the word has been opened and read. We now have a feast. We have a great, a great marriage supper of the Lamb and His bride. Now in Revelation, we get both the positive side of communion and we get the negative side. We get both blessing and feasting with Jesus, but we get the negative side of the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians 11, uh, we read that if we eat and drink unworthy, if we, if we eat and drink in unbelief, then we eat and drink judgment. And so in this section of communion in Revelation, there's also these chalices, these bowls of wrath that get poured out on the earth. Revelation maintains that theme of the double-edged sword. Uh, you either are slain and resurrected to life or you're slain in judgment. But everybody uh, gets uh, the, the sword. You're either slain and resurrected to eat with Jesus or you're slain in judgment. And so for those who are given life, there's great rejoicing at this wedding feast. But we can't stay and stop and hang out at the top of Mount Sinai just like we can't stop and stay at the top of the Mount of Transfiguration. We can't hang out in the heavenlies. We're blessed and we're sent out to work in the last three chapters, chapter 20, 21, 22, all deal with the sending out and the continual work of the building of the kingdom. That's where there's judgment against Satan. There's the binding, the crushing of the serpent and his power, the establishment of the new Jerusalem, the outworking of his kingdom all come in those last few chapters. In short, there's still work to do. We go up to be healed. We go up to be forgiven, instructed, and fed. And then we're blessed and sent back out to change the world and rule the world. We go up the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, but we can't camp out there. Even though, you know, Peter wants to build tents, but we can't build tents. We can't stay there. We have to go back down. And what do we find when we go back down the mountain of transfiguration? There's a demon-possessed boy, right? That Only those who've been at the top of the mountain can uh, be equipped to go down and fight the demons. So we come into worship to ask God to move and change the world. And he sends us out in the strength of the spirit and with the confidence that he will accomplish his purposes. And so John at the end of Revelation is sent back out with the promise that Jesus will come quickly. And the book closes with the anticipation of the advent of Jesus and the benediction, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So we're going to work on fitting all those parts together, but that's a helpful, helpful general outline of the book. Revelation is the account of a heavenly worship service, and it follows a familiar set liturgy. There's a call to worship, a confession of sin, a consecration by the word, a communion faced, and, and a commissioning. Now we're going to we're going to keep working on putting all that together, but the book of Revelation is an invitation to come and see how things run in heaven, to come participate in the worship of heaven, and then to model that worship on earth. To not look at the worship that goes on in heaven and say, wow, won't that be interesting to take part in someday, you know, when I die, when I get to heaven. That's not the point of showing us this. The point is to, uh, to inspire us to get busy making it a reality on earth right now. And so just a couple of quick observations about the worship in heaven. Heavenly worship is organized and it is planned. The only way that the angels and all the saints can sing the same thing at the same time is that they know all the same songs. They've learned them together and they've learned how to sing them together. This doesn't happen spontaneously. It doesn't happen without practice and work and agreement to do this thing at this time in this order. If I said right now, hey, let's stop. Sarah, come over here to the piano. We're going to sing Handel's Messiah. You would look at me like I grew an extra head and you should. We're not ready to do that. We haven't worked on that. Maybe some of us know some of the words. Maybe a couple of us know all the words, but we don't all know all the words. We don't all know all the notes. And if we were to do that, 
we'd have to work on it together. Heavenly worship is, is uh, synchronized, and it's synchronized, and it's all together because it is organized and it is planned. Uh, it is um, it, the Saturday night church operated with the assumption that if you get away from structure, then you leave more room for the Spirit. But it's just the opposite. All of this is revealed when John is in the Spirit, and Spirit is the great, the, the Holy Spirit is the great orchestrator of worship. And when we see the worship that he orchestrates, it's organized and it's planned. Heavenly worship is also antiphonal and responsorial. Uh, in uh, various uh, traditions in the churches uh, at, at various points in history, you have men's and women's choirs who sing back and forth to each other throughout the liturgy. That's, that's antiphonal. Or you'll have a choir who sings and the congregation responds in worship. That's antiphonal. When I sing the Psalms on Sunday morning, when we lead through the, we're singing the whole Psalms, I sing the first part and you respond. That's, that's antiphonal. That's responsorial. And so in Revelation, there are these choirs singing back and forth to each other. Jesus does a thing and a choir responds. Jesus says a thing and another choir responds. Every step of the heavenly liturgy is adorned with music and that music is also instrumental. There are stringed instruments, there are harps, there are brass instruments, there are trumpets. We might assume even that all the psalms, I'm sorry, all of the instruments of Psalm 150 are present in heaven and maybe some instruments we haven't invented yet and some we don't know about yet. If there's an orchestra in heaven, however, and we want things on earth to run the way they run in heaven, then we need an orchestra. We need lots of instruments. Heavenly worship is antiphonal, responsorial. It is organized. It is planned. It is instrumental. Heavenly worship is also physical. There's all this language about posture, about kneeling, about standing, about falling on your face, about playing instruments, about waving palm branches. The robes and the garments of the worshipers are mentioned, and they're all relevant. Worship is embodied in the heavenlies. Again, it's not about you know, this, this individual closer just moaning to yourself. It's all open light and fire and sound. This is a revelation of heavenly worship. And every week as the church reenacts this great drama, we link up to participate in the worship of heaven. And so in this, Satan is bound. The strength of the church is increased and Jesus comes to change the world. Now, I'm not pointing all of this out as an outline of revelation to demonstrate, well, look at all the things we get right. Isn't this nice? This isn't self-congratulatory. There's nothing special about doing what the whole world of Christendom has done for hundreds of years. There's nothing special about that. It only feels special because it feels like we're living in a day where everybody else has forgotten about it or just doesn't care. But we still have work to do. The point is we still have work to do, not to be more traditional or to conform to some worldly standard, but to carefully consider how can we be more heaven-like. What we do together in worship is of vital importance because it's primarily in God's sanctuary where we learn how to conform ourselves to God's order and submit ourselves to what pleases Him. If worship is all about personal emotional stimulation, then we come to worship, we're personally emotionally stimulated and we go out into the world and we do whatever pleases us. What stimulates our emotions and makes us happy because that's what we learned in worship. If we learn in worship how to conform ourselves and to direct our affections toward what pleases God and do and hear and sing and say what makes him happy, then we go out with the expectation that we're gonna do that in our homes and schools and workplaces and neighborhoods. And along the way, conform the world to what makes God happy. It all begins in worship. Right worship is a response to truth. Right liturgy, 
which is another word for habits, right liturgy or order is a response to God's order. So if we want order in our homes, in our lives, order in all the spheres where we have influence, then we must submit ourselves to learn in special worship how things apply to general worship. Jesus in Revelation pulls back the curtain and he shows John, this is how heaven works. This is how heaven worships. This is how things run up here. Now you tell the churches, John, so they can do the same things. Getting that, eating that book, internalizing it has to be one of the biggest practical lessons that is promised readers of Revelation. And next week we'll begin consuming it bite by bite, working through it verse by verse. But for now, let us pray. Thank you, God, our Father, for giving us this revelation of your Son. And we pray that as we meet up with the angels and the saints and, 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 and meet up with you in worship, that you would receive our prayers and our praises, that you would delight in it, but continue to conform us to what pleases and delights you. Father, strengthen us in worship and continue to strengthen us this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.